My name's Aaron Cook. As uh, Paul said, I'm an attorney here in Harrisonburg. I'm a member here at Church of the Incarnation. And, uh, and that's why I'm moving up, Ed. And that's why I've been asked to uh, talk for a few minutes tonight about the recent uh, Supreme Court decision that has brought this issue to some extent even more to the surface than it already is. Um, a lot of folks have questions about it, how it fits in, what it means. And so I'm going to take a few moments tonight and try to give you some context. And it may be helpful. I hope it's a little bit helpful. And um, Aubrey also asked me to then spend some time, a little bit of time at the end, talking about uh, just some personal reflections on uh, how we can live. How, we, how shall we then live, right? So we'll take a few moments here and um, we'll go. The Supreme Court uh, issues about 75, well, this, this year issued 76 decisions. The decisions come out from October to June every year. And uh, at the end of June, beginning of July, they all scatter and go home, the, the nine justices. Once or twice a year, uh, the decision, a decision of the Supreme Court makes big news, and you hear about it. Uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, now, some of you are probably news junkies, and you hear a little more. Um, there are some of us who read most of the opinions, or at least start reading most of the opinions when they come out. Um, but for most of us, it's kind of one of these things you really don't think about the Supreme Court, you don't hear about the Supreme Court, and suddenly it's above the fold of the newspaper, it's on the front page of the news, and um, it's all over your Facebook, right? So, several weeks ago, the Supreme Court handed down a, a decision that's called Obergefell, Obergefell versus Hodges, which immediately, as you know, made front page news and um, lit up the White House as a rainbow. Um, and half my friend's Facebook profile pictures. Um, people know I'm a lawyer, and so many people have come up to me and asked me various questions about the decisions, the decision and also the ramifications of it. What's going to happen next? So, I'm going to try to give you some context. If you're here and you want to talk about, you know, strict scrutiny versus rational uh, review, we're not going to get that deep. It's going to be, it's going to be basic and hopefully a, a, a place for you to understand what the decision is and what the decision isn't. So, we're going to start with the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution is a document that provides the structure for the government. It helps us understand who makes decisions, who implements decisions um, at the federal level. Now, the founders, the, the guys who wrote this document, um, did not want a pure democracy. It recites that it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? Or at least that was in one of their documents. But they didn't trust the people. Um, so it's not, we, we aren't a democracy. It's something they call a democratic republic. What that meant is the people were in charge, but mediated through representatives. They're representatives who hopefully were wise, are wise men and women now, who are elected to represent the people and make the decisions for the people, of the people. But the founders didn't even trust them. So there's several things built into the system. You've heard about them. We're going back to, you know, 10th grade civics. For some of you, that's not too long ago. Some of you, well, anyway. So um, <laughs> there's a couple features of the government that are often referred to as checks and balances that, that 
tries to keep power separated so it's, it's not in the hands of one person or a few people. The first feature is something called federalism. Federalism is the principle that the federal government, the government that's based in Washington, D.C. and covers the entire continent or the, the country now, um, that government was to be limited, is to be limited. And there are many state governments where most of the governmental functions were to be done. So you got the separation from the federal government and the state governments. Secondly, the separation of powers. Remember that? All right, three branches of government. What are they? Yeah, y'all did pretty good. Executive branch. The figurehead of the executive branch is the President of the United States, and there's a number of uh, agencies, uh, uh, departments that are, that are within his uh, executive branch. The legislative branch is the Congress, the Senate, House of Representatives. Coming back to you a little bit. And the, the judiciary, the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court and the federal courts that are um, organized below the Supreme Court. But that's not all they did. Federalism divided the federal government and state governments. The separation of powers, which has three different branches of government. And then they enacted, with the Constitution, the first ten amendments, which are called... Bill of Rights. Very good. The Bill of Rights, uh, you've heard of... Well, not all of them, but you've heard of most of them. Uh, First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government. That's the First Amendment. Other amendments, the Fourth Amendment, protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures. Fifth and Sixth Amendments have to do with the rights of criminal defendants uh, being prosecuted. The Eighth Amendment um, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, right? So these were items that the, that the Founding Fathers wanted to put into this Constitution. Why is that? They wanted to protect minorities, unpopular people, such as criminal defendants, right, from the tyranny of the majority. These are things that even if the majority wants to pass a law, they can't, because the Bill of Rights would prevent that from happening. Now, it's important to know that this Bill of Rights applied at first only to the federal government. Congress shall make no law. It didn't apply to Virginia or Maryland or Massachusetts. It only applied to the United States. Then came the war. Call it what you want, the war between the North and the South, the war between the states. And as an aftermath of the war... Three amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, were added to the Constitution. 13th Amendment prohibited slavery. 15th Amendment provided former slaves, African Americans, with the right to vote. But the amendment that's important for our discussion tonight is the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says quite a bit. But in particular, it says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. You're going to hear that in a moment. 
of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Here's what's really important about the 14th Amendment. How did the sentence start? No state. Suddenly, the Constitution isn't just a limit on the federal government. The Constitution is now a limit on state governments. That was key. Over the next 140 years, the courts have been sorting out what that means. They've been methodically applying each, well, most of the Bill of Rights to the states. So, for example, the state of Virginia now is not allowed to have unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment through the Fourteenth Amendment. Does that make sense? Okay. Of course, there's all these phrases in these Bill of Rights. But what do they mean, right? What is the free exercise of religion? What is cruel and unusual punishment? What is an unreasonable search and seizure? And the way it works is there's a case in court, a civil case, a criminal case, and as part of that litigation, one of the parties raises one of the Bill of Rights and says, in my case, the police conducted an unreasonable search and seizure. So the court has the job of deciding is... This search and seizure, in this case, a violation of the Bill of Rights. So that's the, jo- that's the court's job. The court usually doesn't make broad pronouncements. They're just applying law to facts. They find the facts in the case, and then they say, where does this fall with re- in relation to the law, in relation to the Bill of Rights? So now we come to the 14th Amendment. There are two phrases I kind of tried to emphasize when I read it. There are two phrases in the 14th Amendment that are important. The first one is, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Now what that was thought to have meant for a long time is procedure. You can't, the state can't take somebody's life or liberty or property unless they have and follow fair procedures that apply to everyone. So the same procedures, and thinking back to this being the 14th Amendment enacted in 1868 or so, the question was, are the same rules being applied to African Americans as to the rest of us? However, in the 1950s and 1960s, the Supreme Court started expanding the notion of what due process meant. They started saying, they started calling it substantive due process. They used terms like unenumerated rights. What's that? Those are rights that are in the Constitution that weren't named at the time. Fundamental rights, rights deeply rooted in American history and tradition. And when the court started saying there's rights that weren't listed, they started finding new rights that we didn't know we had. So the right to privacy, the right to contraception, the right to abortion, the right to educate your children as you wish. Um, These are examples of fundamental rights that the Supreme Court has announced in the last 50 years that they found in the Due Process Clause. Now, I'm not here to comment on it uh, necessarily, but to say this is a very controversial decision. And at the heart of the Obergefell decision 
if you read the decision, I'm going to encourage you to here in a minute, um, that's the fight that, that people are having. Can you find new rights, or are we stuck with the rights that the people passed when they passed an amendment to the Constitution? Okay. The second part of the 14th Amendment, the state cannot deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That means is the law has to apply equally to everyone. The promise of equal protection took a long time to come about. Uh, for a long time, the famous case of Plessy versus Ferguson ruled, and um, if facilities, if schools were separate but equal, um, then Afri African Americans were, the court said, given due process. Of course, the fact that they were equal was a fiction, and it wasn't until 1953 in the case of Brown versus Board of Education that the Supreme Court said no. Separate but equal is not equal protection. And that's when the courts started the long process of integrating uh, public schools in southern states. The Equal Protection Clause has been used a number of different ways. There's a lot of groups who try to say our group deserves equal protection under the Constitution. The Supreme Court usually rejects those, um, those claims. They've said that religious groups are not groups that need equal protection. They have said that women are, it are women are, it are a group that deserves equal protection under the law. All right. So that brings us to the Obergefell decision. Hopefully it gives you a little context, a little history, and let's talk about the case. In this case, there were, I think, five or six different cases actually consolidated into one case before the Supreme Court. The Obergefell decision, or Mr. Obergefell was from Ohio. He went to Maryland in 2013 to be married in a place where same-sex marriages were legal. His spouse died, and Ohio would not list him as the surviving spouse on the official death certificate. So he sued Ohio to be listed on that certificate. Two women, both nurses from Michigan, wanted to adopt a child, but Michigan law requires adoptive parents either to be married and in Michigan, that only meant a man and a woman. Or they would only list one, one of the individuals as the parent um, in the adoption process. And so these two women had a couple children, but only one of them could be named uh, as a parent. Two men were married in New York in 2011. They moved to Tennessee, where their marriage was not recognized. And so there were some other cases as well. But these were situations, facts that came before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, in this decision, had to decide uh, this issue of what, and what it came down to is whether there is a, and these are the, the court's words, a fundamental right involved here. What the Supreme Court did was they, they, they did two things with the 14th Amendment. One is they found, they decided, they didn't actually decide in this case, this has been around for a while, but they said that marriage is firmly rooted in history and tradition. Therefore, it's a fundamental right, the right to marry. This isn't the first decision to say this. They said this back in Loving versus Virginia, which is the case in front of the Supreme Court where Virginia had a ban on interracial marriages. And the Supreme Court said there's a fundamental right to marry, and, um, and they, they overturned that law. Uh, there were cases in allowing, for example, prisoners. There were some states that said prisoners weren't allowed to marry. 
And the Supreme Court said, no, there's a fundamental right to marry in the Due Process Clause. This is one of these unenumerated rights in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Then they said the Equal Protection Clause now applies to same-sex couples. Okay? So I said before there are some groups are recognized as groups worthy. That's not the right word, right word but worthy of, of uh, equal protection, and other groups aren't. In this, in this case, it, several years ago, there was a case called Windsor where they kind of hinted at it, but this is the case in Obergefell where they explicitly stated that um, same-sex couples are now a group that under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution deserve equal access to the right to marry. And so that's, that's how um, the Supreme Court gets to that decision. Now, the Supreme Court's decision was five to four. There's nine justices. And the way the decisions work is there's a, a majority opinion. That's the law of the land. And there are five judges, five justices who signed on to that. Um, and I encourage you to read it. I, I think it's a, it's a good read. Uh, and even better are the dissents. No matter where you are on an issue, dissents are great. What that means is the, the judges who don't agree with the majority have the opportunity, if they wish, to file a, a memorandum that outlines why they disagree. And for lawyers, this is important stuff. This is fascinating stuff. But um, if you, and, and this is, this is, this is free. Um, if you ever get a chance to read a dissent by Justice Scalia, do it. When he writes for the majority, it's scholarly and it's, it's judicial sounding. Uh, whenever he writes a dissent, it's because he cares about it and he snipes and it's really funny. Um, <laughs> in fact, he, he, in this decision, in a footnote, he says, if I ever sign on to a decision that starts with the following sentence, and then he reads the first sentence of the majority's opinion. He said, I will hide my head in a bag. You don't see that stuff like that in majority opinions. But when you're dissenting, you get to say whatever you want. Um, so if you get a chance, read the decision. The whole decision is about 100 pages long. But the margins are huge. And uh, there's not a whole lot of words. It's one of those papers you wanted to write in school, you know, where you, it has to be 100 pages, but you can get like... 35 words on a page, you're good, right? The bottom line in this recent decision is this. No state can enact legislation or any constitutional amendment that infringes on this fundamental right of same-sex couples to marry. Okay? So that's the decision. It's not bigger than that. It's not smaller than that. That's the decision in the case. But if you're like me, you're getting lots of fundraising letters and you're seeing lots of things on the news or on commentaries about what's going to happen as a result of this, of this decision. Before I go, I should also say, for those who follow the court, this, this was an easy call. We, we knew this was going to happen. That it would have been a huge deal. They would have had to undo things that, that they've done. They'd, they'd have to take away the foundation that they laid to decide otherwise. So, um, to some extent, it's, you know, for those of us who follow the court, it's, it's kind of shocking, the, the outrage, and, because it's, it was coming. It really was. So, what else could happen? You know, there's, some are concerned at churches and pastors who take the position that Aubrey's outlined here tonight. 
will lose their tax-exempt status, will lose the ability to issue state marriage license, will no longer have 501c3 status. Christian ministries such as schools and colleges who refuse to provide housing, for example, to same-sex couples will lose accreditation, federal state funding, tax exemptions, tuitions, tuition assistance for their students. The Christian adoption agencies will no longer be able to place children for adoption. That Christians in government, such as clerks, refusing to issue marriage licenses will lose their jobs. That Christians in private business will have to close. You've heard stories about bakers and photographers who refuse for religious reasons to participate in same-sex marriages. You've heard about, about all that? And none of that is directly involved with this decision. But just a few comments. These things are still open questions. No one knows how the law will answer them. And the answer will be different in different states. Different states will handle these issues differently until the federal government steps in and mandates a nationwide answer to these questions. Now, Obergefell does lay the groundwork to argue that each of these things could come to pass. Remember that these cases are about government action, what the government's allowed to do. For example, can the IRS revoke an organization's 501c3 status? Can a state pass an anti-discrimination statute that forces a private place of public accommodation, like a retail store, to violate the religious principles of its owners? Those are, those are open questions in the law, and we don't know how they're going to be resolved, and there's going to be a, a time where um, the law goes both ways. But there's something else at work here, going back to the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment protects free exercise of religion and free speech. Um, remember, these are the rights that protect minorities and unpopular, unpopular people from majority legislation. We can talk about that further, I guess. Um, you know, another question is going to be whether it will be used to protect churches and pastors and worship services, what the court has called purely religious institutions. And I think, I think the law will. But the, the, the other question is people who, out of conscience, uh, choose to do certain things that, that people might find to be discriminatory. We don't know the answer to these questions. And there's times when the trajectory of our culture feels like it's an inevitability heading against us. But David Cooper gave me an article this week from Eric Metaxas that argues that if you take the global view of things, the United States is actually in a minority and on the wrong side of history. I'm not here to make that argument tonight, but um, it's out there. And speaking of history, most Christians in most times and places... Do not, did not write the laws. Do not write the laws. We've been the exception. Where churches aren't taxed and Christian ministries receive explicit benefits from the government. If we were to lose these things, if Christians were to lose political power, it's not the end of the world. We'll be just like most of the Christians throughout history. And throughout the world today. Losing these benefits puts us nowhere near the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Right now. In the Mideast and throughout the world. There's a little commentary. Okay. How should we live? What does this mean for us? Our churches, here in Harrisonburg. Aubrey's persuasively laid out our church's position 
But how is this actually lived out in the world, in our friendships, in our politics, in our vocations? There's going to be things that come up that are going to be really complicated and I mean, quite fuzzy. Something happened this summer that surprised me. Um, I'm in a small group here at, uh, at Incarnation. Good to see a lot of small group members here. And this summer, we weren't sure what we were going to do. And so we said, let's read the book of Jude. Nobody's ever read the book of Jude, right? It's that second to last book. It's about a page long. If you've got large print, it's now two pages long. It's a great little book. Jude, one of the early church fathers, is writing to Christians and he says, I was going to write you a letter about how wonderful our salvation is. But something's come up that's more urgent that I've got to talk to you about. Leaders have come into the church who are immoral, arrogant, rebellious, denying Christ. And it goes through uh, several paragraphs of great poetry laying out the issues and what's going to happen to these false teachers. And then he says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with, with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. What's Jude saying to these people? There's these, there's these immoral teachers out there te- teaching false, ungodly things. Be faithful. Be faithful. Practice the disciplines. Put yourself in a position where God can work on your heart. Pray. Keep yourself in God's love. Have mercy on those around you. Save them by snatching them away from these people who are trying to influence them. And then Jude ends with a great doxology in which he says, King Jesus wins. For our small group, we, we read this part of it the, the week after this decision came out. And it was so encouraging. He doesn't call on these people to go out and blast the leaders. He, he calls on them to be faithful, to live in God's love. You know, some issues for us will be very clear. Our church, Church of the Incarnation, you know, we're not going to marry same-sex couples. And if we lose our 501c3 status, that's fine. But other issues, we need to allow a lot of room for discernment with our brothers and sisters. Some committed Christian photographers among us will, for example, discern that they can and should photograph same-sex celebrations. And they should. Others will discern that they need to turn that work away. And they should. And we need to allow room for that. Some of these issues over time will become clearer. But here's what I'm calling us to. Don't discern by yourself. Let's discern together as a community, as a community of believers, as a community of Christian lawyers, Christian bankers, Christian florists. I think that's what we're called to do. Don't go on this. Don't do this alone. Do this in community, in your church community, in in the community of people who share in your vocation. 
Some people are going to be called to engage in the legislative process, the judicial process, and they should. Others will discern that that's not where they are to be, and they shouldn't be there. We need to be very open with what, what we are to do and what one another is to do. But no matter, no matter what you discern you should be doing in your vocation or in your politics, we need to do four things. One, humbly repent. Humbly repent. We must remember that we have been forgiven much. I have been forgiven much. It's the posture when we come to the cup and the bread each Sunday with our, with our hands out and in repentance. Number two, rejoice always. Be full of joy. Be winsome. Don't act or speak or live out of fear. Mike Deaton this past Sunday preached here at Incarnation. And he, he said that the number one command, the command that's most often mentioned in the Bible, is fear not. And I'm calling you to that. Number three, be faithful. Speak up when it's appropriate. Speak the truth always. But it might not always be appropriate to speak. I'm not convinced these sorts of conversations are good on Facebook, for example. These conversations are so much better around the table, over a meal, over a glass of wine, for you Anglicans in the room. <laughs> Humbly repent. Rejoice always. Be faithful. And above all, love. You know, Aubrey mentioned this. The problem in our culture is, is love equals you approve of everything I do. And that's, that's what we're struggling against because we can show love to people, but if what their definition is is you approve of everything I do, it's not going to count. But you know what we need to do? Just keep on loving them. Treat them with respect, people you disagree with, even if you totally disagree with them. Keep in mind that for many, their sexuality, as Aubrey talked about, is the core of their identity, a, finan- a fundamental part of who they are. But love them. Speak the truth in love. And be encouraged. I'm going to close with that doxology from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.